I knew Brother Frank would have some blue on this morning. I said, I knew Brother Frank would have some blue on this morning for his Kentucky Wildcats. What's that? North Carolina? Yeah, yeah. All right, good morning. Good morning. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and get started. Uh, this, uh, this class, I, th- I think, will uh, probably elicit more f- feedback, I hope. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start asking uh, what I always ask in this class, and that is, do you have an alternate subtitle for, for, the, for the chapter? Anybody that's, anybody that's read it, this isn't. And, this is the spirit chapter. This is, this is chapter four, the Christian life, and the subtitle is The Spirit Beautifies. Anybody got an alternate title? Just curious if you don't. That was, that was what I would, the Spirit gives life. And I added two words to that. I said the Spirit gives life to love uh, was my subtitle, but very much the same thing. That's what resonated with me. Uh, I almost didn't understand uh, where that, I understood, but I didn't understand where the original subtitle came from. So let me, Let's start here. This is kind of audience participation, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with an audience member who's uh, got more practice than any of us here. Uh, Brother Frank, um, if you were going to evangelize a neighbor, if you were going to evangelize a neighbor, what would you need to tell them? What would you need to tell a neighbor if you were going to evangelize them? And in, in, in there, I know because I've heard you, I've heard you so many times talk through how it is that you talk to somebody about that, and you do. You always start with love, and then at some point, you talk about separation. You, you in effect, have to deliver the bad news before you can deliver the good news, in effect, and... You always include yourself in the bad news in the sense of, right? I'm telling you this because this is what has happened to me. I've heard him say it a hundred times or more now. That I was, that bad news was bad news for me too, but let me now tell you about what's happened. Let me tell you about what the good news that I've learned is. Um, so, what 
Brother Frank is doing is a lot like what Peter did in the very first one of those evangelistic encounters. And what did Peter, what, if you were going to summarize Peter's sermon, summarize it for me. Anybody. Or we can have this be, you know, numerous people adding different things. What, what would, how was it that Peter talked to his brethren of Israel, right? They'd all come back to town, as many of them as could get there. What, what's he saying? What's he saying? That the one you, the one you delivered to death was the one the prophet spoke about. He's God's son. And what? And what? What's, what's, what did they do when, when they heard that? He tells them who Jesus is. That's right. All right, did everybody hear that? Everybody hear that? That was hard to hear. He said he's identifying Jesus. Who is Jesus? What was it that you did to him? What does God think about him, and what did God do about Jesus? And he has to actually start out by saying that God's sent his Holy Spirit on them, that they're not drunk, as if somehow by being drunk you could speak in a language you hadn't learned, being a Galilean. And then he said, and then they respond, what in the world are we going to do? That's right. That's right, the witness, and the witness was empowered by the Holy Spirit that had fallen on them. They're convicted. They cry out, and he says what? He says, turn away, turn away from sin. Turn away from what you did. Turn toward this Jesus that you crucified. What? Be buried and resurrected with him. And what? Then you'll receive what we've got. That was, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So on page 85, the first page, the chapter begins with the Nicene Creed in what it says about the Holy Spirit. And this is where that sermon starts. That sermon starts with the Holy Spirit. Those simple Galileans, even though they had been with Jesus, 
He said, you wait here until power comes. They weren't ready to go do what they did without the power coming. You wait here until power comes from what? On high. And what did the power do? The power gave life to those in that crowd who heard. The Holy Spirit was, was talking to every one of them. Every one of them. We know 3,000 responded. I don't know if there were only 3,000 in the crowd. There might have been 30,000 in the crowd. But 3,000 responded. What did they respond to? They responded right to the Spirit's message through these enabled enabled messengers. So the Spirit <clears throat> is life giver. We don't have eternal life in ourselves. We can't really have, or really when you think about it, we can't even recognize what a, what a good life is without the Spirit. I mean, one of the biggest problems, one of the things that brings people to, to Karen's counseling practice is they are looking for the good life. They're finding a lot of bad life. And the problem is like the old, uh, what was the guy's name, Mickey Gilly song, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. And we really, we really are all ultimately looking for love. But we can't construct an outline of the good life without the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit has outlined what's here. The power of the Holy Spirit applies what is there. I love what Martin Luther said on page 86 that's quoted here. He basically says, we can't hear the gospel in a saving sense without the Holy Spirit speaking through our fallen perspective. There is no way that we can hear the gospel, really hear it in a saving sense without the action of the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, well, we'll come back to that. I had something that I'd read someplace there, but I'm going to come back to it. On page 86, it says, The Spirit gives us new birth into a new life precisely by giving us new hearts. That was the ultimate promise, 
really in the prophets. You've got Ezekiel and Jeremiah both essentially saying, I've got to, I've got to do heart surgery. I've got to do a heart transplant. I've got to do a heart softening. I've got to replace what was there with something new. That it's not in you that walk to direct your steps. You're not able. I am able. And I'm a loving, giving God. And so we've got Ezekiel, who the prophet of the dry bones, prophet of skeletons being given flesh. Read sometime Ezekiel 36, verse 26. But he basically says the same thing Jesus says and Paul says, Peter says, essentially, that it's the Father's love. that loves so much that he supplies what we don't possess. He supplies the Son. He supplies the Spirit. We know we were dead. We're made alive in Christ. We're born again in resurrection water, which is Romans 6. That was our, you know, proof text. But... And it is. It's a proof text in, in, the, in a really neat sense. It's a proof text about resurrection. This is what baptism is. Baptism is getting to be with Christ. It is hanging on to his neck as he goes down into the grave, and it is hanging on to his neck as he bursts out of the grave. If we can get somebody we're evangelizing to understand that, including our children, that's a powerful image. I've been buried and raised with Christ. Romans 8 says, Through Scripture the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies to our spirit. The words on the page are not what testifies to our spirit. The Spirit is the one interpreting those words on the page to our heart. Page 87 points out that this isn't an abstract thing. In effect, the Spirit is giving his own perspective. The Spirit is giving himself. And why? It says, so we can be made like Christ because if we have the Spirit, if we are, if we are now participating, the Spirit is now indwelling us, and it's the Spirit 
who is in love with God and Christ. It's the Spirit who is, as we saw earlier, inflaming love between God and Christ. Right? That's what fellowship means. That's what he's talking about on page 87. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about the, he said, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. I looked up the term fellow feeling. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? Fellow feeling is, in the Oxford Dictionary, if I'm in fellowship, I'm going to have fellow feeling. I'm going to feel like, feel with, feel toward. Fellow feeling in the Oxford Dictionary defines, is defined as a sympathetic feeling based on shared experience. In fellowship, I'm actually having a shared experience. Fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Father and the Son, I am let in on. And I'm not just let in on, I'm not just an outside observer. I'm now part of. That's what co-heirs means. That's what adopted sons and daughters mean. I'm, I'm not just getting to observe as an outsider. This isn't just interesting stuff, if it's interesting. This is true. I get to participate in what is going on in the heavenlies. I get to participate in how the Father, Son, and Spirit feel about each other, I also get to participate in how they feel about me. I get to participate in how they feel about my neighbor. And that's the only way I will ever get to feel any of those things at a level that will have any real meaning for me. I was going there next. No, 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 you go.
Well, and, and something I thought about, you all tell me what you think about this. I think sympathy, I guess I would sort of define that. I tend to think of sympathy, generally speaking, in terms of sad situations. So in that sense, empathy is a more positive term than sympathy. And by the way, I think we, most of us do this thing, and that's why we, we give a priority to empathy that we don't give to sympathy. You can't really know anything about what I'm feeling, or you can't know much about what I'm feeling because you haven't been there. I haven't been the father, the son, or the spirit. But the Spirit creates sympathy. Let me offer an alternate definition for sympathy. Think in terms of sympathetic vibrations. Sympathetic vibrations are not something that's a response to a sad situation. It's resonance, isn't it? It's things vibrating at the same time. Something starts vibrating, and then something else starts vibrating, and then something else starts vibrating. For me, as I thought about this and prayed about this, that really, I thought about how often I thought of sympathy. In one sense, it's something that I wish I could avoid, because that would mean nobody was having a bad time. Sympathy isn't about bad times entirely. It is about bad times. But what we find here, if we, if we think about it as sympathetic vibration, what we've already talked in another chapter about the harmony of heaven, about how that picture, that, that in effect C.S. Lewis got it when he talked about Aslan singing the universe into existence. That's sympathy. That's sympathetic vibration. That's the music of the spheres, Mike. A great point. Amen. No, you're... In effect, we're talking about people that are in the same posture, in a sense. In, in, in Gary and I were talking a, a week or so ago. Um, there's a place over in East Nashville, uh, a school that I love called KIPP Academy. And... Uh, it's charter school, and they only, I mean, they're dealing with, with, they never have admitted a kid who is reading at better than two grade levels below their attained grade level when they come. And they have the second highest TCAP scores in Nashville. All their students come from right around the school. They, I call it a covenantal model. 
Those children are there from 5.30 in the morning, or, or 7.30 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon every day, a different school day than, than most. 60% uh, of the students come on Saturdays, and they play catch-up. And I have, I have gotten to visit uh, and just thoroughly enjoyed what I saw, like a class of 34 eighth graders listening to one teacher teach derivatives, which I could hardly remember. I was not a math guy. Uh, and every kid in that room is like this. And it was after I said, what in the world? I noticed all these kids are, they've even got the same posture. Well, came to find out they have this acronym. And they are, remember, they're taking children who have grown up in, in effect, an anti-intellectual environment. And, it's, and it always remains a challenge for the kids who come to the school because they're still dealing with kids that don't go to the school. And something's happening to them. But this sympathetic posture that I was observing, they have an acronym for called SLANT, S-L-A-N-T. And I'll tell you, I've, I've actually adopted that myself in a lot of situations. It's sit up, it's lean and listen, it's ask and answer questions, it's nod, and it's track. That's called sympathetic vibration. There's something about that, the body leading the mind in effect, a re-patterning, a, a re-working of what your normal even listening way would be. But it's kind of what the idea is here. The Spirit is taking us and the Spirit is integrating us into something that we were made for. But we don't have any muscle memory about. Y'all know what muscle memory is? I don't want to just... I, Anybody that plays sports, and particularly repetitive motion sports, that's, that's the whole deal. And the idea is the spirit is, is, is training us that, there. So, on page 88, Brother Reeves says, God gives us himself and the blessedness he has always enjoyed. He does so in giving the sun and giving the indwelling. And in the mid in a mid page on that page, I love this. Grace is just a shorthand way of speaking about the personal loving kindness out of which God gives Himself. So the Spirit is the enacted grace 
another enacted grace. The Son becoming flesh and dwelling among us is an enacted grace. The giving of the Spirit is an enacted grace. So remember what remember what Christ said in John 16. We won't read this, take too long. But basically, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's got his face set like flint. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's telling them what's going to happen. They're not hearing it. And then he drops the bombshell on them. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what they felt? It is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, they've already had this encounter where people that have been following Jesus around hear something that offends them and they leave and he turns to the disciples and says, are you going to go too? What did Peter say? Where can we? You have the word. Where could we go? And now you've got Jesus turning around saying, I'm going. Does that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck? I mean, put yourself in that situation. We have left everything, Lord, and followed you. It is better for you that I go away. Whoa. But what is he saying? He goes on and tells them. He's saying, in effect, that a a true new birth is impossible without the Spirit. I can't get my heart transplanted by just hearing. By just hearing, I need the action of the Spirit to empower what I'm hearing. They've been with Jesus for three years, and they can't understand a lot of what he's saying. Right? They don't even understand. He's telling them, I got to go to Jerusalem, I got to be handed over to the chief priest. What? So, in effect, what he's saying is, if I don't go away, the Spirit can't come. And you want him to come. Because the Spirit is the new life giver. He's the giver of new life. He is the one that transforms and renews our minds along with our, what, renewed heart, our transplanted, softened, engraved upon heart. As Jeremiah talks about it, I will write my laws, internalize my laws in you. You won't just read them and have to have post-it notes on the wall to remember what it was that I said tassels at the four corners of your garments and, and, and 
you know, not eating shellfish and, and you know, sacrifices of bulls and goats. You'll get to see the real thing. You'll get to experience the real thing. So, what is the Spirit going to do? Does he tell them at the end of that, of that conversation? The Spirit will lead you into all truth. Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And Jesus is turned around saying, the Spirit is the one that's going to turn them on. It's going to turn you on to be able to understand what those words are, to really be able to catch hold of them. So, in effect, he's saying we're given a desire and then, and then even ultimately a compulsion as we embrace that spirit more and more toward holiness in Christ through the grace gift of the spirit of holiness that Christ has given us. So the spirit is, the spirit is what? The spirit is the enabler of fellowship. The Spirit doesn't just give us an observer's view. The Spirit includes us in the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Right? The Spirit turns on the words. Gives those words the power that they were meant, that they were meant to have. And now we know, in 1 John, we know the Spirit is like a guidance system. It's leading us into truth. It's also exposing where we're off course. How did I respond to that person? Was I honest in that conversation? What did I see when I looked? I mean, we can, we can expand that. The Spirit is the guidance system that's oriented toward Christ. Looking, seeing, responding like Christ looked and saw and responded. Really the way He looked and the way He responded. Not just what I've imagined that He did. So the Spirit then is not our accuser. The Spirit pricked their hearts in that first sermon. The Spirit was not the accuser. The Spirit was the enabler. The Spirit was, in effect, the warning system. The claxtons go off need to hear this, listen to this, apply this. So, in effect, you think about the Old Testament prophets. Almost uniformly, what are they accusing God's people of? I mean, we use one word, unbelief. They were accusing God's people of unbelief. There were different aspects of that unbelief, following false prophets, 
making alliances, hedging bets. That's what we're all good at. I'm really good at trying to hedge bets. The Spirit is there to say, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. The Spirit is saying, as a son or a daughter of God, you can trust. You can trust the Father. You can look at Jesus and know you can trust the Father. Someone who never hedged their bets. The only person that never hedged their bets. And it turned out a-okay. That's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit's putting us in that fellowship so that we can have the confidence that we can walk like Jesus did. Was Jesus opposed? You betcha. Will we be opposed? You betcha. But it's all going to turn out okay. Because why? Because Jesus has what? He's overcome the world. The world may oppose, but Jesus has overcome it. I love Tyndall's quote at the top of page 80, of 91. It says, where the Spirit is, it's always summer. There are always good fruits, that is to say, good works. Does the always summer phrase, did it resonate with anybody but me? I'm looking at you, Deborah. The reason, I, the reason it resonated with me, you remember the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe? With, when the witch ruled, it was always winter, but never Christmas. I love this. It's always summer. It's always summer. On page 92, and this is a quote from uh, the Puritan Richard Sibbs, and he's referencing back when he talks about the servant in this little passage, he's talking about the servant in Isaiah, okay? Just, that, just understand that that's the servant he's talking about. The very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight, the spirit that makes us new creatures and stirs us up to behold this servant is a transforming beholding. A man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ in the gospel, but it will change him to be like God and Christ. But we shall see how God hates sin, and this will transform us to hate it as God does, who hates it so much that it couldn't be wiped away except by the blood of Christ, the God-man. When we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this will transform us to love God. Page 93, I'm going real fast here just to finish up. 
middle of the page is this line. We become like what we worship. We cannot worship God except in the Spirit. We will not worship God except in the Spirit. We may worship half of God. We may worship a quarter of God. We may worship the parts of God that we like and ignore the parts of God we don't. We won't worship wholeheartedly unless the Spirit is empowering us. I think that's where... I think that's where we're going to stop. Jimmy, I'm not going to ask you to read that passage. Um, Let me... Let me read you one other thing, if I can find it in my notes here. Oh, I'll send you home with this question. This was brought up by Gary when we were having conversation. Gary, the asker of good questions. He was posing the question, and I thought it was a great question. I thought it was one that I'd kind of glossed over but was worth thinking about. Lance, I'm glad you're here. All of us can think about this. He's basically saying, you know, the titles, father and son, sound familial, you know, family relationship. Holy Spirit doesn't sound like a family, let's call it family office, in effect, not meaning that in any any political sense, but, a, but, a, but the Holy Spirit doesn't sound as, in a sense, as warm and fuzzy as father and son. What does that mean? Why is that? What, what, what? We're not going to try to answer it this morning. Think about it. We'll probably start next week and see if anybody has any thoughts about that. Just think about that. What is, what, in that oneness, that threeness and that oneness, and you've got a family relationship seeming to be pictured here, how is the Holy Spirit related to that family? Let's just, is that a, is that a fair way of phrasing that? I just think that's really, really a worth pondering. Not from any sort of a negative sense. This isn't anything that's, you know, a problem. It's just something to, something to think about. How is it that the Holy Spirit is related to the Father and the Son? All right. Thanks. Thanks.